are tuned in to Seasoned Crime. This is the podcast where you'll hear a true crime story about a minority. I look into the cases that don't get told on the mainstream podcast and the ones that highlight minorities of all races, religion, countries, gender, sexualities, the stories that get overlooked or bypassed by the majority audience. True crime has no boundaries and neither do we. I missed you all last week. I really, I I promise I do my best to make sure that I get an episode out every single week, but this is a one woman show here and sometimes life just gets in the way. I have realized the importance of giving myself a break whenever I can. And also I don't want to do a half-ass rush job because none of these victims deserve that at all. So I just decided it would be better to skip a week than it would be to give you less than my absolute best. Anyways, I hope everybody's good. The sun is finally back out here in Dallas, and I'm excited. Life is good right now. There are a lot of good things that are coming to me and happening for me, um, some life changes that are going on, and I'm, I'm happy to be on this journey of positivity and new beginnings for myself. So um, yeah, that's... I don't really have much going on, but I mean, what I do have going on is is really good right now, so I'm good. I hope things are going just as well for all of you all. Um, you know, I, I get, I know when things are not good, they're not good. So I'm going to ride this positivity, happy train as long as, you know, they let me on the ride. So enough about me. Let's get to why you all press play today. Today, I don't have any special story or reason why I picked this case. I just ran across it when I was looking for something to do. Today, I am going to tell you about the youngest person to ever be on death row in the state of Indiana. I'm going to tell you how skipping school with her friends ended up being the end of her life as she knew it. Today, we are going to talk about Paula Cooper. August 25th of 1969, Paula Cooper was born. To say that Paula's childhood was difficult, well, that's an understatement. At an early age, she not only witnessed abuse that was happening to others, but she herself experienced abuse of her own, both physical and sexual. She moved around a lot, and by the age of 15, she had been in and out of 10 different schools. I mean, think about it. What, 15 is what, like 8th, ninth grade? 10 different schools by the ninth grade at the latest? Being a teenager is hard enough, no matter who you are. But when you already live an unstable life at home, it's no surprise that your release can sometimes present itself as trouble. Her juvenile record showed that before the age of 15, she had already had a record for being a runaway as well as a burglary charge. In her current hometown of Gary, Indiana, on May 14, 1985, she was doing something that teens do, and that was skip school. Paula and four of her friends decided that they would rather spend the day hanging out, drinking alcohol, and smoking weed than go to school. They needed some money, and Paula thought of a way that they could easily get it. You see, Paula had a neighbor who was elderly, And she figured they could go in easily and take exactly what they wanted. 
78-year-old Ruth Pelkey lived next to Paula, and she was a Bible teacher. 15-year-old Paula Cooper, 14-year-old Denise Thomas, 15-year-old April Beverly, and 16-year-old Cameron Corder all went to Ruth's house armed with a knife in the intention of robbing her. They went in with the ruse of telling Ruth that they were interested in going to her Bible class, and they wanted to get some more information about it. And Ruth was ecstatic. She loved sharing the word, and the idea of sharing these lessons with the girls was the light of her day. And sadly, that light quickly turned black. Ruth had turned around to grab a pen and paper so she could write down some information for the girls, and while she was turned around, Paula knocked her down, and one of the other girls then hit Ruth with a vase. After Ruth was knocked to the ground and incapacitated, Paula took the knife that they had brought in and she cut Ruth's arms and legs. Things didn't stop there. Paula continued on with the knife, stabbing Ruth in the chest and in the stomach 33 times. By the way, this was a foot-long butcher knife that she was using. When Paula was done killing Ruth, her and the friends stayed in the home long enough to go around the house searching for valuables. The girls got away with $10 and the keys to Ruth's 1976 Plymouth. Now, they didn't get away with this, though. They were quickly caught and all were taken and booked into a juvenile center while awaiting sentencing. Even though she was in jail for a brutal murder, this didn't really change Paula at first. While there, she ended up attacking a guard, and once she did that, they moved Paula from where she was and ended up placing her in county jail. Rumor is, while she was in custody, she had no problem telling anyone who would listen why she was there. She would even brag about what she did, saying that if given the opportunity, she'd do it all over again. Without any money for a lawyer, Paula had a public defender assigned to her case, and she told Paula that her best bet would be to plead guilty. And that's what happened. Paula pled guilty to murder and felony murder without any kind of plea agreement. During the sentencing phase of it all, the defense wanted Paula's past to be on display showing how she became the troubled teen that she was. Even going back to her record, Paula was a chronic runaway who had been physically abused growing up. It also came out that at some point in her life, she witnessed the rape of her own mother. If that wasn't traumatizing enough, she said that her mother even attempted to kill her at some point. These life traumas were proof that she deserved leniency. So the defense says. According to the prosecution, these life traumas were proof that she deserved some kind of leniency here. The defense? They weren't having it. Lake County Prosecutor James McNew said, don't believe the poor her act. He portrayed Paula as being beyond hope. She was too far gone for any kind of special treatment and he brought up how she bragged about what she had done soon after it had all happened as further evidence that she was truly aware of what she had done, and for this, she deserved the death penalty. July 7, 1986, at the age of 16, 
Paula Cooper was sentenced to death by Judge James Kimbrough. All of the other girls who were with Paula during the time of the crime were sentenced as well with between 25 to 60 years that day, but it was made very clear that Paula was the ringleader of all of it, so she was the only one who received the death penalty. She was sent to serve her time on death row at Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. 16 years old on death row, with some of the worst of the worst. Of course, there's absolutely no debate on how terrible the crime was, but what many did question is whether or not a 16-year-old should be sentenced to death. There was also a racial aspect that many people brought up. If a 15-year-old white girl committed these crimes, would the punishment still have been death? Attorney Monica Foster didn't believe that this was morally or ethically right, so she took on representing Paula after her sentencing. She organized campaigns and got support from all over the world. Europe was where most of Paula's supporters were. She was able to go back to the Supreme Court with a campaign that had been signed by over 2 million people to free Paula. Signatures came from people of all walks of life. One of the most notable was that of Pope John Paul II. He even made a personal appeal himself to the governor of Indiana in September of 1987. The case got coverage all over in the late 80s. 60 Minutes did a segment on this, along with multiple other television shows, especially in Europe, where, once again, Europe had the highest interest in this. Her hometown also had her on the front page. In Gary, Indiana, she was on the front page of newspapers, but it wasn't just about this young kid who got the death penalty. Paula's name was also in the papers for a scandal that was said to have been happening at the prison that she was at. It was reported that several guards were having sex with Paula while in prison. It wasn't even that much of a secret, so much so that they were given Paula pregnancy tests to make sure that she didn't get pregnant, which she didn't. There was a lot of support for Paula, not because of what she did, but believing that the punishment, it was too much. Someone who ended up being one of her strongest supporters is probably one person who you would think would be anything but. Bill was a devout Christian and a Vietnam vet. When he was a young boy, he witnessed his father cleaning up the blood of his grandmother after he was murdered. That's right. Bill Pelkey is Ruth Pelkey's grandson. For a while, he despised Paula, but as he grew older and matured, he recognized that even though Paula did kill his grandmother, he knew that there was no way that Ruth was one to see this child die because of it. It wasn't just that, but what also stuck in his head was the thought of Paula's own grandfather. Bill had attended Paula's sentencing, and what stood out to him was that her own parents weren't there, but her grandfather was. Not only was he the only one there for Paula, but he was visibly distraught by the whole thing. So much so that during the sentencing, He had to be escorted out of the court because he just could not contain his emotions. When he was taken out, he could be heard crying out, they are going to kill my baby. And this image constantly haunted Bill. 
After the sentencing was over, Bill just couldn't get it out of his head, so he went to visit Paula's grandfather at his home. He got to talk to him about Paula as a person and hear all kinds of childhood stories about her. And he got to see photo albums of Paula, and they also had her sister Rhonda, who was really close with her. She looked like any other kid, but it didn't take long before her happy childhood stories turned traumatic. In the conversations with Paula's grandfather, he learned the details about the trauma that was spoken about at Paula's sentencing. As kids, Paula and her sister were beaten with electrical cords. He heard the story about how her own father raped her mother while Paula was there to visually witness the whole thing. One time, Paula's mother, Gloria, even told the girls that they were going to see Jesus. She had them in the car while it was closed in the garage and just let it run, keeping everyone there until eventually they all passed out from carbon monoxide poisoning. Miraculously, everyone survived this event, but that didn't make it any less traumatizing. After leaving and hearing the good and the bad, Bill was certain that his grandmother would not stand for this. He tried to visit Paula herself in prison, but he was denied access to see her. Even though his intentions were good, it was understandably against the rules for family members of the victim to visit with convicted murderers. This rule wasn't going to detour Bill, though. He couldn't visit Paula in prison, so he did the next best thing, and that was to write her what he wanted to say. This ended up turning into a back-and-forth pen pal relationship between the two, and it went on for years. The fight to get Paula's sentencing commuted never stopped, but it did get delayed a few times. Judge Kimbrough, the original judge in Paula's case, had passed away, so more time had to be taken in order to find a judge to replace him for all of the appeals. In 1987, Indiana legislator passed a bill that raised the minimum age of defendants in a death penalty case from the age of 10 to 16. This was a reaction to Paula's case, but it didn't give any kind of clear understanding on what this meant to Paula's case specifically, so she remained in jail on death row. In 1988, the Supreme Court decision in the case of Thompson versus Oklahoma no longer allowed the death penalty to be an option for defendants for those who were under the age of 16 at the time of their crime. And based on this, Paula's death sentence was reduced to life in prison. It didn't stop there, though, because in 1989, Paula's life sentence was reduced again. And this time, it was down to 60 years. Paula was growing up and maturing into a woman. Even though she was in prison, that didn't stop her from making something of herself. While she was in prison, she earned her GED, and she took a lot of college-level courses. July 17, 2013, after serving 26 years, three weeks, and three days in prison, Paula was released from prison. Bill, Ruth's grandson, was there when she got released. He had remained a supporter of Paula's release, and during the time he spent going through this, it also helped him find his own purpose in life. He founded the organization called Journey of Hope, which became one of the most influential anti-death penalty groups in the country. 
He had actually ended up being granted permission to visit Paula in person prior to her being released and had seen her around 14 times before she got out and was able to join him in the free world. Paula had numerous news crews that were there upon the day that she was released as well. And it was so overwhelming that they ended up escorting her out through the back and they then took her to an undisclosed location. A lot of people believed in this release, but there were still a lot of people who were against it. Upon release, Paula got death threats. The Archbishop of Indianapolis was on her side and he worked with her, helping her to find housing. And it was a great start, but Paula was still just overwhelmed with all of it. I mean, think about it. Not only had she been in jail all this time, but she was on death row for most of it. At the age of 15. And now, at the age of 44, she may not have been behind those prison walls anymore, but she had never actually been out as an adult in the free world either. Things that a normal 44-year-old wouldn't think much about, like driving, getting up and going to work, getting groceries, doing the laundry. I mean, the things that most adults complain about, she was still trying to figure out how to do. If this wasn't bad enough, let's not act like the trauma of her life was just gone. She still had her childhood trauma, and being in jail for over 26 years brought on experiences of its own. During her prison time, Paula spent three consecutive years in solitary confinement from 1995 to 1998. That's three years in a small cell for 23 hours a day. That could have broke the strongest of the strong. On May 26, 2015, just under two years shy of being released, Paula committed suicide at the age of 45. No matter how many people she had on her side and how many supporters she did have, the mental capacity of it all was just too much for her to handle. A friend of Paula's by the name of Melissa, someone she had met in prison and kept in touch with even after her release, spoke out about this. She agreed that yes, the housing and the jobs and everything that Paula got, it helped. And it was great that it was given to her, but what she needed more than anything was never offered to her. And that was psychological help. She was quoted as saying, I've come to believe that anybody who goes in at that age and for that amount of time needs mental health treatment, whether they think they need it or not. You know, this really stood out to me. It's something that You know, I guess I didn't put as much thought into it until I did this story, but after hearing about how Paula's story ended, it made it clear how the system is once again just completely flawed. We've all heard stories about people being locked up for extended periods of time. I mean, think about the last story that I told, Cornelius Dupree, who was in jail for wrongful conviction. It's so exciting when we when we do get to hear about these people getting out and we look at all the positives at that time, but, you know, that part of the story never gets told. Just because someone is taken out of a traumatic situation doesn't mean it just goes away. 
The state normally provides some kind of monetary compensation, very little, and they they provide a few other resources when you're released, but even some of the people that are on parole, if you think about it, like, it's all about drug testing and who you're hanging out with and finding a job and getting money, but there's no stipulations on therapy requirements. How are we able to set the expectation of reform by only looking at what's going on on the outside? and not once thinking about the inside. There's a mental disorder called post-incarceration syndrome, and there are licensed mental health professionals that can help navigating through this illness, but therapy isn't free. I mean, and again, these people are just getting out of prison. I mean, they have jobs. They have so many other things they have to pay for. Therapy is not something that they're thinking about doing, I'm sure, and it's not something that they're required to do. So this is just one of the other things that's wrong with the system that plays a part of just people getting stuck in the cycle. And that was the story of the life and death of Paula Cooper. Now, we've all been young and dumb. I'll be the first to admit there are a few things that I did in my youth that should have had me locked up. I mean, I never killed anybody, but either way, you know, I I did my fair share of things wrong as well. And she was a child. A child that only knew hurt and trauma and didn't really have anyone to stand beside her until it was too late. Not only that, but this is also a lesson that you truly never know what anyone is going through in their mind. No matter what things look like on the outside, some people are walking around every single day in their own prison, in their own mind. I wish that mental help and care was easily accessible as other medical help and care is. You know, of course, being in the U.S., we know that not everyone has easy access to medical care, but at the end of the day, there are hospitals and clinics all over. I'm just saying that mental problems can be just as dangerous as physical problems, sometimes even worse. I think that maybe because you can't always see the problem, so there's not always a visual diagnosis of the problem and the mental capacity of health gets overlooked since you can't look at it and see what's wrong. I don't know. Just just some of my own personal thoughts on the situation. I am a big advocate for mental health and any chance that I get to include any kind of mental health on this podcast, I will, because I believe it plays a huge part in day-to-day lives, a part that we don't talk about, especially as minorities. Those are conversations that we, you know, we didn't have them growing up. Our parents didn't, a lot of our parents didn't have that concept of mental health and the importance of it. And so um, a lot of us are still just trying to get through some things that we dealt with as a child. A lot of us are parents trying to see how, you know, we can be better than those before us. And this is one of the ways that we can be better for ourselves, for our families, for our kids, for our future, is to stop the stigma of mental health. Talk about it. It should be just as easy to talk about as the trauma. I mean, think about it. Like, we all have told a story about how our parents whooped us or how we got in trouble as a kid or, you know, something that we did wrong. And so we speak about those kind of things, but we don't speak about the things that never really went out of our head. 
the things that we're still trying to overcome. And trust me, I'm a millennial. Everyone in my age bracket is trying to overcome something. If you or anyone you know has any thoughts of suicide, even the smallest ones, know that there is help out there and it's available 24-7. The Suicide Prevention Hotline provides free and confidential help at 800-273-8255. Thank you all for spending some time with me today. Remember, if you want to get in touch with me for anything at all, or if you just want to follow along with the podcast, you can do so on Instagram at Seasoned Crime. You can also email me, seasonedcrime at gmail.com, if there's anything you'd like to send there. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast and let me know how I'm doing. I hope you all have a great week and I'll be back next Tuesday to give you another story about a minority. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Seasoned Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.